Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his five-week presentation, Creation in the Old Testament, a series of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, Creation and Wisdom, Part 3, recorded in October 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. Where was the Garden of Eden? It was at the center of the world, but in the Garden of Eden, a river flowed forth from it and divided into four river courses, and those are the four river courses. So what is Ben Sirah saying about the Torah, which is also Lady Wisdom? It and she are the Garden of Eden. They are the wellspring from which the, the world is watered with wisdom. You know, the Torah pours forth instruction, so does Lady Wisdom. They are just as Balaam describes Israel as the Garden of Eden in Numbers 22, so to uh, here um, uh, Ben Sirah describes wisdom in terms of the Garden of Eden, creation language. Okay, last bit, which is my favorite verse of the Bible, basically. Um, finally, Ben Sirah speaks about himself. And it, this is a wonderful way of, of capturing this notion in the priestly creation sort of map that we looked at. About how the goal of all creation is that humanity should be empowered to participate in God's own creative activity, his own creation of the world. Not the, the old one, but the ongoing one. Look at how Ben Sirah speaks. He says, as for me, I was like a canal from a river, like a channel, like a water channel into a garden. I said, I will water my garden and drench my flower beds. And lo, my canal became a river and my river a sea. So what is he saying here? He's saying that wisdom, God has given me wisdom, right? He has given me the ability to reason. And out of my exercise of that capacity, I'm contributing a little canal, right? But because wisdom is from God, ultimately, and, and God operates through wisdom in the world, my canal became a river and my river a sea. What a wonderful image of human and divine cooperation working together to irrigate the world. And so he says, emphasizing the ongoing nature of creation, the creative enterprise, he says, I will again make instruction shine forth like the dawn and will make it clear from far away. I will again pour out teaching like prophecy and leave it to all future generations. I have not labored for myself alone, but for all who seek wisdom. So here we have the human vocation described in a little nutshell. Let's leave Ben Sirah and go on to our last contestant, King Solomon, or at least a fictionalized version of King Solomon written by a Jewish um, philosopher who was very much influenced by Stoicism. Stoicism was a, a Greek philosophy and a cosmopolitan philosophy of the Hellenistic age, third to first century BC. Uh, Wisdom of Solomon may have been written as late as, one, as first century AD, for all we know. But in any case, it reflects um, an engagement with the, with the Greeks' elevation of human reason as sort of the pinnacle of what it means to be human. The whole of the wisdom of Solomon is basically an exegesis. It's a creative expansion of a scene from the Bible where Solomon, having been nominated as king, then prays to God for wisdom to help him rule, to understand how to rule his people, which God gives him wisdom. This is why Solomon is often the persona 
invoked in wisdom literature because he has the reputation of being the wise king, right? Of course, in reality, he wasn't that wise because he ended up, you know, destroying the kingdom and worshiping hundreds of other gods and all this, but that's a separate story. There are positive traditions about Solomon's wisdom in the Bible. Well, here is how Solomon speaks as he prays to God. He says, May God grant me to speak with judgment and to have thoughts worthy of what I have received, namely kingship, for God is the guide even of wisdom and the corrector of the wise. And then he says, It is God, he, who gave me unerring knowledge of what exists. And then you have a long list of areas of knowledge. They all have to do with the natural world, although psychology is included too here, the thoughts of human beings, uh, as well as demonology, controlling the powers of spirits and herbal medicine, the virtues of roots. But basically, according to uh, the Hellenistic world, all of the human sciences, God gave me knowledge of these things. But how did God give him knowledge of these things? Did he just miraculously... If anyone's ever said the, seen The Matrix, you know, when, when the, the hero of The Matrix gets jacked into the, uh, the hard drive and they sort of feed him this information and then a minute later he says, I know Kung Fu. It's not that kind of downloading of information into Solomon. How does he know this? God gave it to him for wisdom. The fashioner of all things taught me. The exercise of reason, the development of the sciences, that's how I know this. But that's all a gift from God. But notice the parallel of these two statements. God gave me this inerring knowledge, but wisdom, Lady Wisdom, the fashioner of all things, taught me. That's almost saying that, we, that, that Lady Wisdom is a creator or a creatrix. Right? And this is something we will see that comes together cl- more closely in this text than in any other in the Bible, is the, um, both the distinction between God and Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom is subordinate to God, a creation of God, and yet... Everything that God does is describable in terms of what Lady Wisdom does. Everything that can be predicated of God is predicated of Lady Wisdom. What we have here is what we might call binitarianism. Uh, not, not a belief of God as three persons, but God as two persons. We have God, the king, and then we have God, Lady Wisdom, or almost like that. She's never called God, but everything God does, she does, or he does through her. Okay, let's see how this plays out. First of all, Solomon is going to praise Lady Wisdom. There is in her a spirit, so she is a spirit, notice, that is intelligent, holy, unique, manifold, subtle, mobile, clear, unpolluted, distinct, invulnerable, loving the good, keen, irresistible, beneficent, humane, steadfast, sure, free from anxiety, all-powerful, overseeing all, penetrating through all spirits that are intelligent, pure, and altogether subtle. Again, long list of the virtues of Lady Wisdom here. And these are all Stoic, many of these are Stoic concepts, Stoic philosophical concepts that are simply being taken from pagan philosophy. And this author is sanctifying these, that God created all of these things and they are Lady Wisdom. And here we get, wisdom is more mobile than any motion. Because of her pureness, she pervades and penetrates all things. Can you hear Star Wars in the background with the force? She pervades and penetrates all things. That's the force, basically. Which is basically, Lucas gets that from the Stoic philosophy, more or less. But again, notice, the radical imminence of God is manifested through wisdom. Wisdom is the radical imminence of God in the world, according to this view. She is a breath of the power of God, a pure emanation of the glory of God, of the glory of the Almighty, 
She is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God, an image of his goodness. Wow, that's a lot. The working of God. So basically, whenever God does something, which is to say creation, creation, God creates through Lady Wisdom. Anything he does, anything that leaves a trace, is Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom is all that we can know about God in this author's view. All that you can know about God is a woman, he's saying, essentially. Although she is but one, she can do all things. While remaining in herself, she renews all things. And here we get the continual creation part. In every generation, she passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God and prophets. She makes them saints. For God loves nothing so much as a person who lives with wisdom. So this is ongoing. In every generation, she does this. I'm just going to take snippets of these so we can have time to talk. Um, she orders all things, just like God orders all things. She's an initiate in the knowledge of God. Initiation has to do with the idea of mystery. She is initiate of the mysteries. That's why she can introduce us to the mysteries of God. She's an associate in his works. She is the active cause of all things. She is, therefore, the fashioner of all that exists. If anyone loves righteousness, her labors are virtues. For she teaches self-control, prudence, justice, and courage. Have we ever heard those before? Those are the four virtues, the four cardinal virtues. That's what she teaches. If anyone longs for wide experience, she knows everything. That's why you ask her. And on and on. So, says Solomon, I determined to take her to live with me, knowing that she would give me good counsel and encouragement and cares and grief. Essentially, he's going to marry Lady Wisdom. But I perceived that I would not possess wisdom unless God gave her to me, and it was a mark of insight to know whose gift she was. So again, it's not human beings just being smart animals. It's God who gives us the ability to do all this. So I appealed to the Lord and implored him. With my whole heart, I said, and then we get a very long prayer for wisdom. And again, we won't read all this, just some of the key, the key snippets. So he begins by invoking creation. O God, uh, who has made all things by your word and by your wisdom, has formed humankind and have, to have dominion over the creatures you've made and rule over the world in holiness and righteousness. Vatican II loves to quote that phrase. Um, give me the wisdom that sits by your throne. So again, just like in Ben Sirah, where is she? She is by the throne of God. Even one who is perfect among human beings will be regarded as nothing without the wisdom that comes from you that sits by your throne. Um, and then he talks about what God commissioned him to do as king, including building the tent, right? Building the tent, that model of creation. With you, O God, is wisdom. She who knows your works and was present when you made the world, she understands what's pleasing in your sight, what's right according to your commandments. So send her forth from the holy heavens, from the throne of your glory, send her that she may labor at my side and that I may learn what is pleasing to you. So again, human divine collaboration, that is what, what the working of wisdom is. Whenever we use our wisdom rightly, whenever we use our conscience rightly, we are collaborating with God. Lady Wisdom is at our side. He continues, For she knows and understands all things. She will guide me wisely in my actions and guard me with her glory. Um, then, down in verse 17, Who has learned your counsel unless you have given wisdom and sent your Holy Spirit from on high? So, within a Christian context, the Holy Spirit is Lady Wisdom. Or Lady Wisdom is a way of conceptualizing what the Holy Spirit is. It's not quite the same, because in Christian doctrine... The Holy Spirit is not a creation of God, but, but part of God himself, right? 
so the theology is a bit different, but here's where we get all the imagery. And I think it's actually in the Syriac church, do they still have referring to the Holy Spirit as a she? I know in one of the Eastern churches, you have the Holy Spirit is still a she. So they are drawing from wisdom literature here. But notice that the culmination of all her acts is that we are saved by her. So who is the savior of the world? It is Lady Wisdom, which is to say it is God's activity in the world. Last bit, and we're just going to summarize this here. In chapter 10 of the Book of Wisdom, we get a synopsis, a demonstration of how Lady Wisdom is the savior of all things. We get a list of all the characters from the creation uh, stories and those that follow it in Genesis and Exodus. Wisdom saved Adam. Wisdom saved Noah. Wisdom saved Abraham, Lot, Jacob, Joseph. It goes on and on. Every time God acts in the book of Genesis, here it says, no, it was Lady Wisdom who was doing that. She did it. And here is the culmination. Again, remember that the greatest, old, the greatest creation story in the Old Testament is the crossing of the Red Sea. Right? That's the creation story where creation or the creation of the people happens in history, the people through whom God is going to rectify all creation. Here's how the wisdom of Solomon retells that story. She entered the soul of Moses, the servant of the Lord. She gave to a holy people reward for their labor. She guided them along this perilous journey that they took by day and by night. She was that pillar of fire, right? She brought them over the Red Sea, led them through the deep waters. She drowned their enemies. Therefore, the righteous plundered the ungodly. They sang hymns, O Lord, to your holy name. There's the distinction with God there. Praise with one accord your defending hand, for wisdom opened our mouths. And there you have the most beautiful ending of our story. Wisdom enables praise of God, right? which is what human beings are created to do. Creation culminates in adoration. So hopefully I've excited you to, to think that wisdom literature is actually kind of interesting and is worth pursuing further. Uh, and we could talk a lot, but we're going to leave the last 15 minutes for questions, comments, and discussion. So what shall we talk about? The question was, what do we call the books that are in the Christian Old Testament, but not in the Jewish Tanakh, in the Jewish scriptures? Catholics refer to them as, they, as the deuterocanonical works, meaning that they were canonized later. They were, that they were canonized sort of later on than the rest of the Bible, which was sort of the Jewish scriptures. In Protestant circles, they are referred to as the Apocrypha, which is a term that, that derives from the church fathers. It is actually uncertain, however, whether the church fathers mean by Apocrypha these books that were included into the Christian canon. Um, Apocrypha in Protestant Christianity generally means texts that come from the ancient tradition of Israel. They are expressions of the faith of Israel. They are great for contemplation, for meditation, for thinking about how to live a good life, but they do not have the same doctrinal status for defining faith and morals as the rest, as, as the Jewish scriptures, as canonized by, by the rabbis did. Uh, but, you know, so, so Catholics call these deuterocanonical works. Uh, Protestants call them the Apocrypha. Were they translated the question was, uh, were, the, were these books, which we call the deuterocanonical works, which include some of these wisdom texts, were they translated into Greek at the same time as the rest of the Hebrew Bible? Um, well, it's a difficult question because a lot of the timing of translation is speculative. Um, we know that the Torah, again, the Pentateuch, we know that was translated in the 3rd century B.C., um, 
we have we, we, we can date some manuscripts of Greek texts, uh, thanks to the Dead Sea Scrolls, to uh, to the second and first centuries BC. But we don't have a clear chronology. But basically, yes. By the time that you have the Christian Bible, by the time you have the fourth century A.D. with Codex Sinaiticus, which is the most complete earliest version of the Greek Bible, you have all these texts basically assembled. Um, so they were translated basically in the same era, during the same era. We have to remember, though, that during this time, there is no Bible. There's just the Torah and the prophets and then the rest of the stuff. Uh, there are no clearly delimited boundaries for what we now think of as the canon of the Bible. Um, in the 4th century AD, Christians had to start thinking about this seriously because the Emperor Constantine called up Eusebius, the bishop of Caesarea, and says, send me 50 copies. Well, what do we include in them? So Eusebius, in his church history, compiles all these different traditions about what the our earlier church fathers, what their opinions on this were. So by the 4th th- century AD, you have something like something what we could then call the Bible, and we can say, well, why are certain things in and out? But before that, you can't really ask that question. Uh, and certainly within Judaism, too, uh, it's, it's really not until several centuries into the common era that you have something like a defined canon. There are traditions about things the rabbis did, but it's really not clear that things sort of solidified in the, think, the way that we think of them now until much later. Yeah. Yes, sir. Okay, so the question was, a question of, of early church history and the church fathers. Uh, did the church fathers, did some of the, the early Christian theologians make use of this, these texts from wisdom literature to meditate on and reflect on the nature of the Holy Spirit within the then fairly well-defined Trinitarian theology? Honestly, I have to say I don't know because that's not my area. My suspicion is yes, and my suspicion is probably Origen would be a good place to start because Origen was a Platonist, and any, any church father who is wedded to Greek philosophy is going to find this stuff, you know, dynamite, because this is using Greek philosophy, and so it essentially it, it sanctifies and justifies the validity of that. So uh, I would have to leave the specifics of that to someone else, perhaps Dr. Gerber, to answer that, but Augustine, did Augustine you make use of this? Again, uh, I have to confess, I'm, I'm very ignorant on this matter. Uh, all I can say is I would be surprised if he didn't. Uh, maybe someone else can comment on that. Uh, if anyone knows Augustine very well, um, there, there I have to just say I'm not, I'm not the, I'm not well read enough on this topic in the Church Fathers to be able to answer that with any specificity. But you know, it would be shocking if they didn't use this. And so that yes, that there was these texts and others too were very important. I would assume to the the formation or at least the reflection on the, the Holy Spirit. And and to to maybe give you an answer that I can contribute to. Um, you know, it, it, the, the, the process begins, it's not that, not that there was sort of a different kind of Christian theology and then they discovered this. Rather, already in the New Testament, you have the appropriation of wisdom theology and an application of it to Jesus. That's mainly in John's Gospel through the Logos. You know, the Logos is just a different um, idiom for talking about what these authors are talking about. Of course, there's something more to that because you go in verse 14 of John chapter 1 to the word becoming flesh. Lady wisdom never becomes flesh. She remains essentially a metaphor. But, uh, but essentially all that is predicated upon Christ as the Logos, the Logos sorry, is, uh, is applicable to wisdom theology. Again, he himself said, even before you get to John's theology, he himself said, I'm one of Lady Wisdom's children. So obviously, 
he had a, a knack for this sort of stuff. So it's, the answer is it's there already in Jesus' own teaching and in the early, um, the early literature of at least one strand of the New Testament that became terribly significant in the formation of Trinitarian doctrine. And so, again, of course, the later church fathers would make use of this. Yes? The question is, um, is there sort of a, a precedent for the personification of wisdom in earlier, uh, in earlier religions, earlier uh, like Canaanite culture perhaps, from which we know a lot of the mythological language and concept, the conceptuality of creation derives? Um, not Lady Wisdom as such, not the personification. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom literature out there, but none of it personifies her as a woman. However, when she said back in Proverbs 8, uh, about um, those who seek me out are happy. Uh, the Hebrew is Ashrei, which sounds a terribly a lot like the goddess Asherah, which is one of the Canaanite goddesses that many Israelites worshipped. And so it's possible, although we don't know a lot about the cult of Asherah in terms of its theology, if it had one, it's very likely that, that the author of Proverbs is sort of aware of this Israelite um, you know, uh, Israelite uh, uh, liaison with Canaanite uh, worship, at least in its past, and is maybe appropriating the language, the claims of that cult for Lady Wisdom, perhaps. So it's a possibility. But again, I would say that, that when we talk about the, the really rarefied, you know, grand theology of Lady Wisdom, you know, this is, you have to, you had to have had contact with Greek philosophy in order to, to think these thoughts, I would think. You know, you don't really have any precedent in the earlier cultures uh, that surround the Bible for that level of abstraction and that level of personification. We're really dealing with the intrusion of Greek culture and, in a sense, the embrace of aspects of it by Jewish thinkers. Um, uh, you know, think, think of uh, Benedict. You know, Benedict said in one of his famous lectures, his Regensburg talk, he said that, that uh, the, the encounter between Christianity and Greek philosophy was decisive for its formation. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, he said even. So even before he could think of that, you know, Jews were encountering Greek philosophy and embracing, critically embracing parts of it uh, and relating it to their own tradition. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of intercultural stuff going on there. Anything else? Yes, sir. Okay, so let me rephrase, let me rephrase the comment first and then... So the comment was, um, isn't it hard enough to sort of explain the doctrine of creation, how you would get to this idea of God creating the whole world? Is, doesn't it just complicate things? You know, what would be the motive to complicate that, to say, well, not only did God create the world, but God created it through, uh, through wisdom who has to be gendered? Um, well, uh, there's a couple answers to that. First of all, as... Jewish theology develops and evolves uh, and becomes more sophisticated, you move sort of away from what you might call a mythological idiom for talking about creation and indeed God's activity in the world in general. And you will want to preserve God. You want to preserve the transcendence of God from any suggestion of anthropomorphism, you know, you know, making God look like a human being forming the earth. You want to avoid all that. You know, think of much later in Jewish history, Moses Maimonides, who said that you know, everything about God in the Bible is simply just metaphors to help the ignorant understand things. It's really Platonic philosophy or Aristotle that's where it's at. God is transcendent. So even early on in Jewish thinking, there's this emphasis on the transcendence of God, and therefore you have to somehow explain how this transcendent um, ground of all being 
can be conceptualized as acting in the world and affecting the world. And the way you do it is to say, well, God is both transcendent and imminent. And the way you name that imminence is to, is to give it a name. And you could call it reason, you could call it wisdom. Uh, in Aramaic, in the Targums, the, the, the Aramaic commentaries on the Torah, uh, they would speak of the word of God, the memrah of God as doing everything that God is said to do, rather than saying God does it himself. So the first reason why, it, why do you need this extra layer, as it were, of explanation is that it's a more sophisticated, nuanced understanding of the transcendence and the imminence of God. You, you express that by naming it. You know, it doesn't, the Trinity complicate things. Well, yes, but God is complicated. <laughs> to, to how to talk about God is complicated. So you need transcendence, you need imminence, you need, uh, you need a third party too in order to bring us into the equation, that's Jesus. But the point is that the language gets more complicated because the discernment of the mystery of God has become more deep. Uh, why does wisdom have to be a woman? Well, as I said, it's because it's a feminine noun. Uh, when you have the logos, when you have the memra, that's a masculine noun, and so you use masculine terms to talk about it. The gender is predicated, first of all, on the, um, presumably on the, on the gender of the noun, but maybe there's something more to it. Maybe, maybe these Jewish authors are saying it's, not, it, it's, it's inadequate to use masculine language of God, or at least only to use that language, because God is neither male nor female. So why do you keep talking about him as a he? Why can't you embrace the feminine side of existence, if there is such a thing, to, to embrace the totality. If God made them, male and female, together as his image, then surely you need feminine language to talk about God as well. There's not a lot of that in the non-wisdom parts of the Bible. There's a few images of God as mother and things like that. But basically, it's only in wisdom literature that you really have a sustained reflection on the limitations, if you will, of an exclusively one-gendered uh, idiom to talk about God, so maybe you need both. Um, not that these are proto-feminist theologians, these are simply uh, you know, using masculine and feminine language to signify different aspects of God's being, in this case, his transcendence and his activity in the world. That would be my two answers to that, you know, that it has to do with a more complicated notion of God, not, not that creation is more complicated, but the understanding of God, and since wisdom is simply a personification of what we are capable of, it's also a meditation on who we are and how we relate to God's creative activity. Human beings make things far more complicated. So thank you very much. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.